The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host today. We've got a packed hour coming up. Um, There's a lot going on here in Washington, D.C. today. And one of the main things that we wanted to talk about today is immigration and specifically the DACA program and what the Trump administration is going is doing about it. Uh, so in studio today, I'm so honored to have two fabulous guests. Welcome, ladies. Uh, Claudia Flores. Um, she is a dreamer herself, and she is the new campaign manager for immigration and uh, dreamers here at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you, Maggie. How are you doing today? Good, good. We're, we're going to figure this out. Um, and then also in studio with me, we have um, Andrea Centeno from MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Thank you so much for coming over. Thanks for having me. All right, so Lady, so I wanted to start. So, you know, for many of us that are doing this work, advocating for um, immigrants and young immigrants, um, we know all about DACA. We know the ins and outs of this program and just how much it helps people. But for a lot of folks, they might be thinking, wait, what is, what is this program? What's DACA? I've been hearing about it in the news. So can you just walk us through the basics of what this program is and why it is so vital to help people? Sure. So, you know, we are at a critical moment here where the Trump administration is um, about to make a decision to um, decide what to do with over 800,000 immigrant youth who have been um, under the protection of the DACA program. So the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program was enacted in 2012 through executive order, and it is a program that has granted temporary relief of deportation and the ability to work legally for nearly one million um, young immigrants. Um, you know, DACA is a critical program not only for the beneficiaries, their families, or communities, but also for um, just the uh, you know our ability as a nation to continue revitalizing our economy and being able to uh, you know make use of the best talents of some of these young people. Um, myself, I, I am a beneficiary of the program. And, um, you know, one of the huge concerns, um, you know, behind this program is also the fact that, you know, 800,000 people have presented themselves to the federal government. That means submitting personal identifiable information, um, addresses, right? Um, And and to make it a point to say that we are here, we are here to stay, we're here to contribute to our communities, and this is our information, right? and And the promise that, you know, Donald Trump made to dreamers uh, was that we could rest easy, that he was going to approach this with big heart. And yeah. now we're at a critical moment that I know that we'll be talking today about you know, what is happening, what we can do, but um, th- this is really important right now, and, and this is going to define, I think, what the administration's uh, you know, uh, immigration stance is going to be. Yeah, and I think that that's what 
you know, is so stunning to me about what this administration is considering doing, um, getting rid of this program, is that it, this was a promise that our country made. And we told people, like, you can trust us, sign up. We want you to be here. And it's young people who are committed and want to stay in this country and want to work hard and want to aspire and be a part of America. And we um, are on the verge of breaking this promise. So, I mean, Andrea, it, if you could maybe walk us through, um, we should say we don't want people to panic. This program still exists, but it is under threat. Sort of how did we get here and what's going on between um, sort of the, the lawsuit in Texas and what the administration is doing right now? Because there's a, so much uncertainty, right? Sure. And there have been a lot of rumors swirling around in the past weeks and then more concentrated in the past few days about what uh, Donald Trump is going to do as soon as today or sometime this week or sometimes sometime before this deadline of September 5th that we kept hearing about. Um, and so part of this all stems from original litigation led by the state of Texas and many other states to attack the Obama administration's announcement of deferred action for parents of Americans, so parents of U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents. And then in addition to that, an expansion of the DACA program. That, um, that effort challenged the implementation of the DAPA program um, and put that on hold. And many people might remember or might be familiar with all of this kind of moving through the Supreme Court um, and the litigation that surrounded that. In June, led by the state of Texas again, uh, 10 states have decided to give Donald Trump an ultimatum, mm -hmm. saying, we want you Republican to... Republican-led <laughs> exactly. attorneys general. Attorneys general coming out and trying to force Donald Trump's hand and saying, we want you to rescind this program. We want you to phase it out and stop um, you know, um, giving out new uh, DACA grants and stop renewing DACA applications. Um, otherwise, we're going to sue. We're going to see you starting September 5th. Um, and what they really are doing is they're going to try to um, expand the litigation that's already out there related to DAPA um, and amend their complaint so that they can include the DACA program as well. And there are a couple of reasons why, you know, there's this fixation on September 5th. But I think what's really critical is that Texas pulled this date out of thin air. There's mm -hmm. no reason why Donald Trump needs to act by September 5th. He doesn't need to act by next month. He can act whenever he wants. And so what we really need to see right now is Donald Trump says that he's a master negotiator. He says that he knows how to cut deals. <laughs> um, and we want to see those negotiation skills. Is he going to roll over and let Texas call the shots here? Or is he going to say, this is my decision to make, which he has said before, um, and actually take serious consideration of what this would mean and the timing of all of this. And so he doesn't, there is no uh, other reason other than Texas and their cohort of nine other attorneys general trying to force Donald Trump to do something, trying to call the shots on this issue. Yeah, so there's, it just sounds like some ridiculous legal brinksmanship going, going on with the, some of these Republican attorneys general. Certainly, certainly. And, you know, I think that um, to go back to you, Claudia, one of the things, you know, when I um, read about this program, when you hear about this program, phrases like the best and the brightest get tossed around a lot, that these are young people who just they, they want to work. They want to contribute. Um, and I know that, you know, um, your team has done some analysis, not just of sort of individuals and what they're contributing, but overall, just how good it is that this group of incredible young people want to stay and be a part of and contribute to this country. Definitely. So, 
you know, aside from, uh, you know, potentially ending this program, aside from being a merciless decision and something very cruel and and disruptive, right, to the lives of real people, I think um, here at CAP, you know, something that we we really want to stress is that we have one of the largest um, surveys of DACA beneficiaries to date, right? We partner with United We Dream, which is the largest network um, led by undocumented youth, um, the National Immigration Law Center, and some of their other partners at the state level. And we have... Um, you know, track down the experiences of DACA recipients and analyze the economic benefits. And all the data points to how critical this program is in, one, ensuring that young people can participate more fully in the workforce, but also making sure that um, our economies are revitalized. So, for instance, uh, after receiving DACA, what we have is that, you know, 69% of our beneficiaries have reported moving to a job with better pay, right? Um, jobs that you know better fit their education and training levels. Uh, we know that um, you know right now, in terms of how much you know um, DACA has positively impacted you know wages, which I know that oftentimes the conversations becomes about the working class and mm-hmm. what does this mean. Well, ending this program is actually going to wor- to hurt our economies. Um, you know, it's going to limit um, the ability of, of DACA recipients to be able to to participate. Um, I think you know, obviously, more fully um, based on on their background, but also um, you know the the impact that we have when when we evaluate that. You know, five uh, percent of our respondents say that they've started their own businesses after receiving DACA. Right. right, right. I mean, these are young people. Um, you know, one of the uh, the requirements of the program is to, you must have been under 30. Um, you know, as of 2012, when the program was announced. Um, and you know, 45 percent of, of of these people are currently in school. Um, you know, 72% are pursuing a bachelor's degree or higher, right? So, you know, because of DACA, right, um, you know, 94% of, of the people that we survey have said that they have pursued educational opportunities. So, you know, at a time where, you know, we're seeing changes, um, not just globally, but even in our own economy, you know, we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing the contributions of DACA recipients, right? So that is why this move will be foolish um, aside from um, the wide support that this program has. I mean, it's a popular program. Um, governors, I mean, uh, we saw a coalition of, you know, Republican state leaders, you know, send this arbitrary deadline to the administration. But in the same manner, we saw nearly double that number of, you know, state leaders coming in defense of DACA and saying, like, right. it makes no sense for you to do this. So the numbers are there. Um, you know, the facts are there. And I think it is now for folks to understand that it's not just going to be detrimental for DACA beneficiaries. It's going to hurt, you know, real communities. And, and, and it's going to, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's going to um, limit the ability of, of our economy. I mean, we have a hurricane that is mm-hmm. affecting lots of people in Texas, you know, rebuilding efforts. You know, how is DACA going to impact that? You know, it, totally. it, there's like a real impact. Um, to 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 changes to this program. Totally, and I, I think sometimes people try to draw this drive this wedge between people who care about immigration and people who care about jobs, and without realizing that. Uh, you know, how important having um, the immigrant community in the United States is to prosperity in our economy and our future, especially the young people that, you know, this program affects. I I think the numbers are are 40% of the Fortune 500 companies in the United States were founded by immigrants. So these things go hand in hand, which is why I think, like you said, we see these um, bipartisan, this bipartisan coalition of state leaders who are coming together to protect 
DACA because this is a program that is good for their state's economies. And it's morally important that we don't break promises to people. I personally think that, but you know, we'll see what Donald Trump does. And I think just laying into kind of the threat that Texas is posing here and the the image that they're trying to sell to Donald Trump and to America. You know, Claudia just spoke about all of the benefits that we've seen of the implementation of the DACA program over the past several years and what that really means for our country and our economy. And if you take Texas's threat that they're going to sue and that this was, you know, this means that somehow the end of DACA will then be imminent, at least through the courts, I think it's a little bit short-sighted given the fact that Texas is not going to be able to receive a preliminary injunction against DACA. It's a program that has already been in place for some years, um, and we have seen those kinds of effects. They're not going to be able to justify that in front of a court. Um, And so, you know, for Donald Trump, for him to act in this way, in addition to kind of all of the moral arguments that we're seeing here and kind of the real tangible benefits that we see of the program, it would also be a huge concession of his executive authority to take action like this. Um, and so, you know, it's just such a foolish time to act and it would be a foolish measure for him to take. Absolutely. You know, we've got a caller um, on the line who had a question um, about this. So we're, we're going to go to the phones. Um, Ishmael from Manassas, Virginia. Ishmael, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you so much. I'm just going to uh, give you a quick example of why DACA is very important. Uh, Steve Jobs, who invented Apple, his father was an immigrant. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how much immigrants contribute to this country. Uh, one of the Google founders also came in as a young you know, immigrant. Absolutely. So, so I don't understand why. I mean, I mean, for us to advance, to continue our advancement, it's important that we bring in very sharp minds to help this country excel. You know? and, and that's, that's what I want to say. But what, my question to, to you guys is, what role is the Supreme Court going to play in this? So really, really quickly, um, Andrea, do you want to take that before we're out of time and also tell people where to learn more about this? Sure. So I'll be very quick. The Supreme Court could play and come to play into this in a couple of different ways. If Texas seeks to amend their complaint in the U.S. v. Texas litigation, then we would have to um, have a legal battle over whether they would be allowed to amend and then kind of the litigation that stems from there. Texas could also decide to bring its own lawsuit um, not related to the previous litigation and then we're likely to then see an argument over whether the executive actually has the authority to um, implement a program like DACA. But then again, it really is dependent on Donald Trump being invested in his own executive authority and the power that he has as the president. And here we argue that it is well within his power to implement um, a program like DACA. And so he needs to be fighting to preserve that. And then lastly, I'll just say there are many of different types of resources out there. I would highly encourage you to look at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, and their webpage has some information specifically tied to what DACA holders can be doing right now or what they need to know. And certainly if anybody has any questions or would like to get in contact with MALDEF, I would encourage you to visit our website, www.maldef.org. Awesome. Thank you so much, Claudia Flores. Andreas Centeno, Uh, this is The Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back, everyone. 
This is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress, and this is the Leslie Marshall Show. We've got a jam-packed hour today. Um, For our next segment, we are going to be talking about automatic voter registration, which um, I'm pretty fired up about as probably the best thing that states can do to make it easier for young people to participate in elections. And there was some big news on that this week. Um, So here with me, we've got two fantastic guests who have been leading the fight to pass automatic voter registration. Mm -hmm. Um, First, we've got Sarah. Sarah Dello, um, a very good friend, former co- colleague, and now executive director at the Alliance for Youth Action. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hey, Maggie. Great to be here. And then we also have Stevie Vallis, who's the executive director at Chicago Votes, who was leading the fight to pass automatic voter registration in Illinois. Welcome to the show, to the show Stevie. Hey, it's great to be on. Well, I'm so excited to be reunited with you two because the last time we were talking about this, it was unclear whether the governor of Illinois was actually going to sign this bill into law. So, Stevie, I wanted to kick off with you. Could you just give us a real quick overview of what automatic voter registration in the state of Illinois is is going to do and uh, the governor's signature this week? Yeah, so we're super excited that uh, Governor Rauner um, the first Republican governor in the in the country to sign automatic voter registration decided to work with members across the aisle to put this piece of legislation into practice. Um, automatic voter registration will break down the barriers, some of the barriers there are to being able to vote by allowing people who um, visit any government agency in the state of Illinois to be automatically registered to vote. So instead of a opt-in system where you're asked if you want to register to vote, you will now be automatically registered to vote, and you will have an option to opt out if you just do not want to. So we're estimating that this will add about 2 million uh, eligible voters to the rolls in the state of Illinois, which is uh, awesome. That's that's so incredible. And it makes so much sense. I mean, so this is, you know, when you're getting your driver's license, right, you would just sort of automatically get signed up. You don't have to worry about going and doing a separate registration. Right. That's so awesome. Well, you know, I think that one of the things that um, we are um, really excited about that you mentioned is also that, you know, this is a policy that has been considered in many states, but has generally been um, very split along party lines. So it's great to have Republicans come in on this. So we're going to go to a quick break and we're going to talk about how to get this in more states. Life, liberty and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Maggie Thompson, your guest host for the hour. We're talking about automatic voter registration with Sarah Adello from the Alliance for Youth Action and Stevie Vallis from Chicago Votes. So we were just talking um, before the break about some exciting news that the first Republican governor, uh, Governor Rauner in Illinois, passed um, and signed uh, an automatic voter registration bill. This is something that advocates, especially youth advocates, have been pushing for for a long time because it's something that will make it easier for our generation to participate. And I wanted to kick it over to Sarah because, you know, this was exciting news in Illinois this week, and there's some real momentum around this policy. And Sarah, do you remember how many states is it now that have automatic voter registration for people? 
Yeah, we are up to 10 states uh, that now have automatic voter registration, which is really exciting considering the first automatic voter registration law passed in Oregon in 2015. So already we've got 10 states on the map. Like Stevie said, uh, the fact that we have a Republican governor that signed it in Illinois, but also that their state house unanimously passed automatic voter registration is really huge in terms of building momentum to try to get this in as many states as possible. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, other than the fact that this just makes it incredibly easy for people to get registered to vote, um, for us as youth advocates, there are huge benefits to this policy in terms of making it easier for our generation to participate. So I don't know if you could talk through some of the benefits that you all have seen in the places um, that this has passed or what you anticipate this policy could do for young people. Absolutely. Um, So... This is a really exciting policy for young people, period, um, for a few reasons. One, uh, one of our affiliates, the Oregon Bus Project, uh, really was the leader in Oregon in terms of writing and getting the law, the first law passed there. Um, And like I said, it happened in 2015, and data that we have from 2016 showed that there was a six percentage point increase in in youth turnout between 2012 and 2016. Uh, So, And you might ask why. Well, when you ask young people, why aren't you participating, there's a few reasons why. One of them is that they weren't registered to vote. And so just make it so easy so that once you interact with the government agency that you're already registered, um, that we think is one of the really important pieces to making it easier for young people to participate. Because once you're registered, then we can really work on talking to young people about the issues they care about right. and holding us elected accountable. Right. It's not just a horse race. It's about the issues in our elections. And, you know, we've actually got um, a caller, so I wanted to jump over to the formerly Uh, quickly. We've got Dean from Buffalo on line four. Dean, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. You guys do a great job. Um, You know, this was a uh, Hillary Clinton idea. Um, I think it is really great because all of the hoops you have to jump through to um, register to vote now, they would all go out the window, and so too with the voter uh, suppression. So I think this is great, but I like with everything. I think somebody should have a choice whether or not that they want to register to vote. Yeah, and thanks so much for your call, Dean. I think that that's a really important um, thing about automatic voter registration. And Sarah, I don't know if you want to jump in here, but this isn't automatic voter registration doesn't mean that you don't have a choice in whether you register to vote, right? Exactly. I mean, and this is where um, you know the type of laws that were passed uh, gives you the chance to opt out. So that that point is really important, so that if folks are not wanting to be registered, you do have a chance to opt out. Uh, but what's really important here is we want to make sure that people have the chance to just be registered, period. Uh, and then it really is up to whoever's running for for office to actually reach out to voters to engage them. But the registration piece in particular, and it's the case in Oregon, it's the case in Illinois, is that uh, Illinois, that voters have the chance to opt out from being registered, um, which is, it is uh, that gives people that opportunity, uh, that chance if they would like to. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, it it just I remember when I was a a student, there were so many people that we would work with who, um, you know, they would start um, really um, queuing into an election in like the last few days of an election and would get to the polls on election day. And if they were in a state or a place that had a registration deadline, they weren't able to vote, even though they were showing up. And it just it's it's it seems like a, a pointless barrier when people are wanting to participate. 
Exactly. And that's what, definitely what we see with young people. You know, we are, we're one of the most mobile generations uh, out there, uh, whether it's uh, moving for college or moving for jobs or unstable housing because it's really expensive to rent or own. Um, <laughs> that's right. Of, <laughs> there is just a lot of mobility with the generation. So just making it easier that if you update your license, you're registered. Um, if you're interacting with other government agencies, like in the case of Illinois, your registration at your address is getting updated automatically. That is making it easier to participate in the process should be the goal for all of us. Absolutely. It's just a, a simple process thing that'll make a huge difference. So I know that, you know, you've, you've got 10 states on the board, but you are waging the fight to get this on the board in more states to make it easier for more people to vote. So where can people um, find out about and sign up for, for your organization? Absolutely. Um, you can check us out at allianceforyouthaction.org. Uh, hit us up if you are interested in seeing what this looks like in your state. We're happy to connect you to the killer groups on the ground that are leading the fight. Um, certainly for states that already have automatic voter registration, there's going to be implementation work that needs to be done. So I know Chicago votes and folks from the really uh, killer coalition, they're going to be working on it. But yeah, allianceforyouthaction.org. I would love to hear from y'all. That's fantastic. And we're so excited about this. And the Alliance for Youth Action and Generation Progress have pulled together a toolkit. So if you want to ask your legislators to pass automatic voter registration in your state, or if you're lucky to thank them for passing it already, please um, check that out at allianceforyouthaction.org. Um, so, uh, Stevie, um, any any last uh, word of advice for people that maybe are thinking, oh, man, like I'm in a state that's we're really conservative. They won't like this. What was the best thing that you all did to get this done in Illinois? Well, there are a couple of things that um, I think made our uh, conservative uh, partners really uh, interested in making sure automatic voter registration was passed. Um, one, it makes Election Day easier. Um, it, it makes the line shorter. Uh, you don't have to worry about validating anyone's paper voter registration forms, which I'm sure anybody who's gone out and voted, that is a process when you're going to cast your ballot. Um, it makes the voting list more secure. So through automatic voter registration in Illinois, only U.S. citizens are uh, eligible to be uh, registered, and it That's alleviates right. our outdated voting system. So in Illinois, one in eight registrations have been thrown out due to errors and things of that nature. And with automatic voter registration, that is no longer the case. And it's cheaper. Absolutely. It is. And, you know, I'm sorry, Stevie, I'm, I'm going to we're running out of time. I'm going to have to cut you off there. But. Uh, election security, I think that's something we can all agree is what we need. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you so much both for being on. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name's Maggie Thompson of Generation Progress, wrapping up a jam-packed hour. Um, we wanted to wrap up talking about Hurricane Harvey, the historic storm that is just hammering Texas and now Louisiana. Um, I know this has been in the news so much, um, and there's a lot to talk about um, what's happening with the storm in real time and really um, what this storm can tell us about other other trends. So as always, feel free to call in with any questions at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Um, and I'm so happy um, to have in studio with us today a fantastic guest, Ke- 
Kathleen Kelly. She's a senior fellow um, here at the Center for American Progress. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thanks so much for having me, Maggie. Absolutely. Um, so let's just start with the top lines. I mean, Harvey has been in the news nonstop, but it's such a slow moving, long term storm. I feel like this has been um, the news just keeps coming. and It keeps getting worse. So sort of where are we at with what's going on with this storm? Absolutely. Well, Tropical Storm Harvey is just continuing to devastate communities across Texas and particularly in Houston. Parts of Houston actually saw over two feet of rain in 24 hours. And so at this moment, the entire entire metropolitan area of Houston is flooding. Uh, the latest update on fatalities is 10 people, at least 10 people are now reported wow. dead. There's 9,000 people that are currently at the Houston Convention Center seeking shelter. That facility is only designed for 5,000 people. Wow. So massive cramming during this um, very dangerous emergency situation. This is the fourth day of the storm. More rain is sadly occurring right now and is expected to continue. The area is, is expected to see up to 50 inches of rain. Uh, absolutely, when all is said and done, possibly more. Just to put that in perspective, that is roughly one year, uh, one year's worth of rain in in a one week period. Wow. And and this and, is at and, a time when Texas he, has already been devastated by rain events this year. Right. And Houston, I I, I remember hearing that this is not an area that's well suited to sort of absorb that because the soil is really clay. So it's like rain landing on a tabletop. It just doesn't have anywhere to go. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, Texas is a relatively uh, flat state, and the the volume of rain that is coming down right now is simply unprecedented. We have never seen flooding like this. Uh, we have never seen or experiencing experiencing anything like this in the past. Wow! No, it's unbelievable. And I, you know, one of the things that um, I think people are are starting to talk about now is that this is not just a a, a bad storm. This is like you said, this is a historically bad storm. This is a once in a lifetime storm. But um, looking at what you work on with with climate change and climate resiliency, in some ways we should be um, this. This is really a cautionary tale that this this could be the new normal. These super storms. Absolutely. While you can't say climate change caused any particular event or caused. Harvey, there is uh, strong scientific consensus and confidence that climate change and as temperatures rise globally, um, we will see an amplification of severe weather events. And in particular with Harvey, while climate change isn't the, the cause or source of the so storm, uh, ocean temperatures have been rising right. in the Gulf, and that is how a storm draws its energy. And mm -hmm. so the warmer ocean water um, uh, is actually fueling a stronger, more powerful storm. You know, similarly, with sea level rise, uh, human-caused climate change is causing the seas uh, to rise as we see ice caps melting and water expanding. And that is uh, amplifying the storm surge that we see with events like Harvey. And so that you know puts coastal communities particularly at risk. And then of course the rain. Uh, right. You know, we with climate change, there's more atmosphere, more water in the atmosphere. And 
and that just adds uh, rain to these extreme storms. And actually, scientists are saying that roughly 30% of the rain that we are seeing with Tropical Storm Harvey is uh, caused by climate change. Wow. So so what would that be? 15 inches of the 50 are just an extra layer because of <laughs> climate change. Absolutely. It's just unbelievable. And, you know, we, we have a, a caller, um, uh, Michael, on line three from the Bronx. Um, Michael, um, did you did you have a question for Kathleen? Greetings, ladies. Now, it's kind of a question, but I just want to direct your attention to a particular factor here with Harvey. And, of course, prayers and um, best wishes go out to those who are suffering. But then when you notice the past 24 to 48 hours that instead of caring for those in the state, which pretty much was very supportive of him in the 2016 election, Mr. Trump persists on not only pardoning um, Sheriff, that racist Sheriff Joe Apio, but has been vouching and defending him. No word whatsoever from Trump in terms of how much the people are suffering in Texas or those that have perished, again, from a state that has um, overwhelmingly supported him in 2016. So I don't know how Texans are feeling now about Mr. Trump. And then we do a compare and contrast when Bush was in office, this was somewhat the same kind of neglectful feeling when it came to Hurricane Katrina for those people down in Louisiana, which was another state that favored a Republican. And then yet there was discrimination as to um, who was getting um, evacuated, who was receiving the post-storm um the post-storm reliefs. I mean, there was a whole bunch of chaos. But then between that, it was President Barack Obama with Superstorm Sandy. And yes, my state, my city was one of those that was hit by Superstorm Sandy. Not as bad, though, as um, New Jersey. But President Obama wasted no time. And um, tending to and seeing those that were in need of help and reforms and rebounding and sending funds over to those affected, whether people voted for him or not. So you ask yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, who was more presidential and who was more of a leader and very caring in cases of natural disasters, emergencies, and crisis? And I think it was Obama. Right. No, I, I, I totally agree with you, Michael, and thank you so much for your call. I think that that, and especially um, that you mentioned uh, Superstorm Sandy and calling from the Bronx, you know, that was another um, storm where people never thought that it could get that bad. I know people were saying, um, you know, the World Trade Center site, um, the climate change scientists were saying that it was possible that that would <laughs> flood, and um, people were saying, no, it's not, and then it did uh, years later during Sandy. So, I think um, just to go back to you, Kathleen, Mm -hmm. you know, what Michael really brings to the forefront here is that these um, natural disasters that um, in the past we've really viewed as a purely natural phenomenon, both in terms of what's driving them, what's fueling them with climate change and also the reactions. This is a really human thing, these storms. And and there's just so much that we can change about the way that we are um, reacting and getting ready for these storms and thinking about who is most affected. Absolutely. Michael, thanks so much for your call. And and let me just join you in sending uh, thoughts and prayers to the people down in Texas and and now in Louisiana who are being affected by the storm. This is a very dangerous situation. And I know people are terrified and we're really thinking about them in in this time of crisis. 
you know, on in terms of um, the the Trump uh, response to um, Tropical Storm Harvey and and of course looking to the Obama administration's reaction to Superstorm Sandy, I think you know the the federal uh, emergency response is still underway. It's mm-hmm. it's still a bit early to to make a definitive call on um, on how that response is going. You know, I think it was um, a, a very interesting and and concerning decision that the president made to actually go down to the disaster area mm-hmm. right now when we are. Still, at this moment, um, uh, the emergency responders are trying to focus all their attention and energy on rescuing victims who are still right. in need, who are still on their roofs, who are roofs, yeah. begging 911 for assistance. And, uh, you know, anytime a president visits uh, a location, a lot of resources, police, uh, public officials um, are drawn away from um, everyday reg- mm-hmm. uh, normal operations um, to, to actually attend to the president. This was not really a time to. to to go down and um, and uh, and be part of this response, yep. you know, the, the president just didn't have a role um, while we're still at this very critical stage of emergency response. Um, you know, you, Michael, you made a, a great point about President Obama and how he reacted to uh, Superstorm Sandy. You know, immediately after the storm. Uh, he put together a task force of top officials and experts around the country to develop a plan that would not only help the area recover, um, but also to rebuild in a way that would be more resilient right. uh, to future disasters that will be fueled uh, and exacerbated by climate change. And so a lot of the recovery plans that were in place uh, really focused on taking into account sea level rise. And taking into account um, the fact that um, cities uh, like New York uh, and and along the Gulf Coast will see more rain uh, and uh, hurricanes and flood events. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we were talking about on the break before we got started was when we're thinking about climate resiliency and we're thinking about um, how do you put in plans that really um, help the people that are affected most? Because I think that that's something that gets missed sometimes in um, the stories about these storms is sort of the people that are most vulnerable and are most impacted by these extreme weather events. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, it's it's a positive sign that, that mayors and other, uh, you know, officials around the country are recognizing that it pays to actually have a resilience plan right. in, pay, in place um, before a disaster hits. Every dollar invested in preparing for disasters and climate change saves four in the recovery and response. I think the other thing that officials are recognizing that, it, you know, it, it's not just about um, upgrading infrastructure and reducing flood risks. Those are obviously very important. But being resilient to climate change and future disasters really requires increasing economic opportunities, right. creating jobs, addressing historic inequities that have disproportionately put uh, struggling families and people of color on the front lines of climate change, floods, and uh, other environmental hazards. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen, for being with us here on the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, For folks that want to learn more, go to AmericanProgress.org. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, Grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love. 
your toes in the sand, an ice-cold drink in your hand. Waves lapping on the shore as palm trees sway in the tropical breeze. Sound like paradise? This is winter, St. Pete Clearwater style, with 35 miles of white sand bliss and warm gulf waters. Paradise is closer than you think. Visit awardwinningbeaches.com to plan your perfect getaway to St. Pete Clearwater. Voted the best beach in America by TripAdvisor.